Welcome back to Potter's Pockets, episode 009, a discussion on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, chapters either four and five or four through six. I have it on good evidence from Miss Sarah Miller that I was mistaken that we were actually going through six, but I'm halfway through it anyway, so if we want to talk about it, I think we can talk about it. So welcome back, Mr. West Chance, and welcome back, Miss Sarah Miller. A lot going on with both of you. Yeah. Greetings. Hey. Howdy. <laughs> Yeah, so it's hard to know who to start with. So Sarah, well, so Sarah, I suppose, uh, you've been traveling some. So you're like the, I'm sure you're wishing for the Weasley's magical flying car right now. Could you tell us a little bit about where you are and what you've been doing and where you're going? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, the last 10 days or so, I've been packing up my apartment um, into multiple trunks. Um, (laughs) And, um, and I am moving west to Seattle where, um, to be closer to my family and, uh, and west, of course, <laughs> naturally. Um, and, uh, yeah, I decided to make kind of a, an odyssey of it instead of just, uh. instead of just the, 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 the joy of flight that they experience, um, is, uh, temporary and, <laughs> um, <laughs> I have been on so many airplanes in the last 15 years. Not that I, you know, I, I shouldn't be complaining because what a privilege it is to be able to travel by air. But um, I'm just, I got, I grew sick and tired of seeing my family um, by getting on a plane. I mean, it's, that's hard and it's a lot of money and time. And um, it's one of the many reasons I'm making this jump. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess a flying car would be nice, but right now we're in a Chevy Tahoe and um, I'll be honest, if you put your foot pretty heavily on the gas, it feels like flying. (laughs) Um, And uh, a lot of my stuff is going to magically fly there in a pod. So um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like my method of travel is a lot less crappy than it feels like <laughs> every every wizarding method of travel that we've seen so far, like none of them look that appealing, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. Well, it's interesting because it's sort of like how Harry and Ron don't go the conventional route on the, the Scarlet Snake, even though it's not their intention. And they, they end up going yeah. together, together as if, as if like the infinite possibilities of all the friendships you can have devolve into the actual friendships you have that it's like, just as they are now differentiating themselves from the general populace. It's like, so are you doing the same? Not everybody else is going on this journey towards a new school in Hogwarts like you are, this is yours. And so I thought that was sort of interesting, but Wes, you, you had something fairly significant happen in the last few days. (laughs) So, um. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, I got married here in Spokane, Woo-hoo! and, and uh, we are very happy. We're doing. We did a couple days up at the the river and the lake, but we're gonna do the the big honeymoon in uh, in Christmas time instead. So we're back where, home now. Can I ask, like, where where are you going? Do you know? We're, we're gonna make a uh, trip down to Uruguay, nice. and. Yeah, we invited some friends from there, but they couldn't make it to the wedding, so we wanted to take the honeymoon to them. So. Nice. Well, that's wonderful. We're all flying over and spreading good cheer. Well, y'all are all doing good things, and so um, you're in slightly a different position from, say, 
Carrie and Ron, and I guess just to jump in, there were several things we were talking about we wanted to talk about, like sort of parallels yeah. with Gilderoy Lockhart and Harry Potter and fame and how they perceive fame. And, and a couple of ideas you had, Wes, in the first book about, um, about um, Malfoy being sort of obsessed with Harry Potter and his crew seems to have been borne out by his conversation with Lucius Malfoy, who brings up that Draco does not stop telling him about the exploits of Hermione and of Harry, who he claims everybody loves. And that's certainly not the experience of Harry. But something that really stood out to me in this, that, um, and again, just because, and I know you're getting tired of hearing this, Wes, I watched Interstellar yesterday, which some people come away with a fairly cerebral view of, and that's why it was recommended to me. But I had a very effective a very uh, emotional reaction to the story which i think is actually a more a more powerful feature of it and so just to speak about a powerful emotion that we get that i was feeling alongside the boys today and i was wondering what thoughts y'all had on was the tremendous guilt and shame that they feel and fear that they will get expelled when they hit that whomping willow and then they get a serious talking to from snape mcgonagall Dumbledore who speaks to them with disappointment and then later from um, their from the Weasley mother who then says that the father is facing an inquiry and it is all Ron's fault <laughs> I just thought that was a tremendous sequence of events and just uh, I mean just how far they went. Remember Harry's thoughts in the car that, oh, we're going to show up and Fred and George are going to, and we're going to land safely and smoothly and Fred and George are going to be so jealous and everybody should travel like this. And then they're sweaty and then they're about to hit the, the, the castle and then there's a whomping willow hitting them and then they're going to be expelled and they're being yelled at and they're being spoken to with disappointment and they've ruined their parent their parents' lives and they've exposed the wizarding community. It's awful I... it's great though it's great i mean it's the um the ultimate road trip above the clouds <laughs> it makes me think of uh, james and the giant peach more ah. so than interstellar if you remember when they're up there but it's like yeah it's a magical thing and it really telegraphs like how horribly it's about to go by its very you know majesty up there you know it's like okay we're headed for a definite crash landing here there's going to be a fall after this ascent and i think it's very interesting the way the car is sort of anthropomorphized there at the end it's um mm -hmm. it's even it's mad at with them. The yeah it's even like uh, nature oh wes oh yeah so sorry just to interrupt you but it's like it's as if that's trying to describe the feeling of being in trouble as a child that even nature uh -huh. and technology are angry at you and against you. <laughs> well, and Hedwig. I mean, Hedwig gets... Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, Hedwig gets, like, um, shrieking in terror. Um, and, and then, like, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain I don't think this is giving away anything in the future. Like, she doesn't talk to him for, like, six months. Hedwig, I mean, Hed Hedwig, like, the owl <laughs> is pissed. <laughs> um, and then Hermione is not okay with them either and they refuse to even talk to her in the common room it, Except, it really yeah and then well, until saying, after like, the howler they they yeah because they got their just desserts um but like yes. they walk in it, it is kind of like this interesting parallel with lockhart right because they do something that's so colossally bad and wrong and dangerous just on all of the levels and stupid right like i mean yes, they're what they 12 think. right yeah, I mean, like, yes. 
Um, I remember like what was I think it was McGonagall who said like why didn't you send an owl and they were like uh uh and we just didn't <laughs> I didn't we think, didn't think that, that is entirely like, clear <laughs> that is I think of in particular Harry thinking about how good the Weasleys were to him over the summer and this is how he rewards them is a specific mm-hmm. thought the howler it's like you <laughs> were you so selfish that and so I mean, this is a real question for him to ask. Was he so overcome with the idea of doing something cool and potentially getting some some bonus points to his name that he didn't think about the potential consequences to everything and everybody around him? Sort of, sort of like Lockhart. Well, so right. So no, he doesn't think he's like Lockhart. But he doesn't. But, maybe. He, but like, do you think that their primary motive for taking the car? is fame because when no, i read it no. i i got the sense that their primary motive for taking the car was oh shit a fear of of the opposite yes. of fame yes. which is yes. well not the opposite of fame but like the negative kind of fame which is like public shame right yeah. um and i wondered if if yes. like i because it doesn't seem to me like they don't seem to hate the fact that they walk into the Gryffindor common room and everybody's like uproariously cheering for them. No, Ron is pretty about it. Ron, Ron <laughs> seems to like it a little bit more, but like, <laughs> but, but I don't think that it's the reason that they take the car. I think they take the car because they're just like, yeah. oh man, this is terrible. And like, they're right. just so, but right. you're right. Like, there are so many things they didn't think about, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, Wes. The, uh, the way. The way that I thought about it was like, what is what is the reader not thinking about too? I was like, because we're, about we're Mrs. Weasley either, though I should have been as a teacher. Yeah, right. We're given so many prompts to you know constantly to um, kind of identify with Harry as the protagonist and the, the most engaging character in all these ways. But at the same time, it's like that. That's part of the book's power, I think, is that you so strongly feel for this person who goes through so many crazy adventures and you're like, Oh man, like I should have seen that coming. Like, come on. That was like really obvious. Come on. But I really wish, you know, I had been in Harry Potter's place all the same, right? Like that's, that's kind of the magic of, of the book. And so for me, it's like, well, it's like, obviously he should be connecting the dots here with um, that powerful and strange little like uh, elf guy who he met uh, back at the Dursleys. But uh, but no, you know, it's it's like also sudden, and so so many things are going on that we he sort of like jettisoned from. Our I think mind also, I there. mean, so thinking, I I told Alex this before, but like because we had a little bit of time in between our last recordings, I and I had nothing else to do besides pack up my life. I was. I was, I just kept reading. I had a hard time stopping um, this book. And, and so thinking about this episode, this is how they get to Hogwarts in the second installment of the series and knowing what the, the villain of the second series is and the trajectory and the themes. And how is that different from the way that they get to Hogwarts in the, in the first series? Like, so mm. Harry gets in, or in the first book, like Harry gets introduced to, um, uh, Diagon Alley and then to Hogwarts like through the yes. the care and and um, like leadership in a way of like a, a friendly Hagrid. adult right of Hagrid right and at the end of the book I mean not to reduce it to something sim- simplistic and like the moral of the story is but I mean you could say that like that that um, you know one of the things that the first book really explores is this 
the difference between reality and appearance and how people in positions of leadership, people in positions of power can be abusive of that power or can be right. And so then in this, in this book, you have an object that you think is on your side, that you think is a tool that you can wield and that you have full control over when in reality, like the, the flying car and the whomping willow, right. Those are objects that they are not in control of and they think they are, but they're not right. They have like they have a, a will of their own. They have a mind and a will, maybe, a, maybe not a mind that might be too strong, but certainly like a will of their own and agency in the way that like the kids are expelled from the car at the end and it goes on its own in the forest and like, and, and, and how, do, how does that sort of like the way that they get into the truly magical educational world that is, and also in, I guess in the first series, it's that's, it, that first train ride to Hogwarts is where he first meets his fr- his his friends. You know, he 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 realizes that he's not the only one burdened by expectation and um and like the way that they get to this mm. school seems to be um seems to prefigure something that they're going to learn later, right? So that like yes. not yeah. all objects are under so, your control. Like objects, some certain well, magical objects yeah, have, so. have wills, right? So I want to agree with that at a couple levels. Mm-hmm. The first thing is I wonder to what extent enchanting something is giving it agency mm-hmm. to some degree or anthropomorphizing it. Um, certainly there's transfiguration, transfiguration and transformation, but to enchant something, like mm-hmm. I think of the Whomping Willow sort of as an enchanted plant. And we do have a couple sort of special plants here and a suggestion that as we progress into the magical world, things are going to get a little more real for them, a little more dangerous, a little higher stakes. But just what you said about perception, I would hypothesize that that's the major theme of this entire second book, perception and misperception. Mm -hmm. And I would give as evidence of that exactly how the antagonist uh, 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 attacks those who will Mm. be attacked in the future. It's through gaze. It's through a mirror. It's through a misperception. Um, And um, just to add to that, sort of as a tangent, I found it interesting this time around. I know we're going to talk about this more next time as much this time interesting that the the alexa pharmac or the potion that will that can heal the potentially fatal wound of the basilisk will come from a plant that can also kill you if you hear it scream Mm -hmm. and so sort of an idea that you know equal forces in this world have to be applied against each other mm. or that uh, you know that which is poisonous to one or is poisonous in one circumstance is also a healer in another kind of suggesting the symbolic nature of 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 humans right a, a, mm. a person in front of you is a friend in one circumstance but an enemy in another mm. uh, like in the civil war when it, your brother one day is now the enemy on the other side the next. And I would say that Gilderoy Lockhart also um, uh, helps to illustrate this, this difference in perception and reality, right? Mm-hmm. He is ultimately not a very talented wizard, but because of how he looks, <laughs> he's really gotten far in the world and is very famous. And he himself misperceives the fame of Harry mm-hmm. and uh, what Harry's relationship to fame is. He thinks that he wants it. And, uh, and he even misperceives his relationship to other people, right? He's always taking too much. He, uh, when he talks to Professor Sprout for the first time, he, su- he suggests that perhaps he's a better herbologist than her, which is ridiculous because she's, you know, an herbologist, the most prestigious magic college or high school that exists, um, and, and, and then proceeds to take 
Harry uh, uh, aside with him without having her permission, thinking that that mm-hmm. would be okay. And she, she, she's very much not okay with that. So I, I definitely agree with you. This is a text about perception and misperception. I would Wes, say that. I'm sorry. Uh, or sorry. Yeah, go on. Sarah. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, I think that we could probably see that as a theme perception of various different things and at different levels throughout the entire series, not just this book. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. Wes? Sorry. Absolutely. I, I, I'm, yeah, I just meant so in a physical way. Yeah. That, like it is even more drawn out yeah. in this particular one. Um, well, you know, yeah. So Wes. I guess I wanted to go back to the the traveling thing and and how enchantment brings things closer to human beings in a way. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought it was cool how the um yes. flu powder um they they as usual sort of assume that Harry knows what the heck he's doing mm-hmm. when he really doesn't at all. Um and then and then are so, you know, so overjoyed when he survives after all and comes back to they, the, I loved that up. part that they and were running that they work. actually cared about him what a unique that's an even more unique experience to him than the flu powder <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, go on I'm sorry yeah well yeah so so he um he has this kind of like accident which of course turns out to be like very beneficial um where he overhears some uh some inside information right uh, and gets to see this other side of Draco um, around his I, father. I would think he would be ashamed and all these to have been beaten on every single yeah. test by a muggle-born. And that's also where we are really shown that sort of first uh, antipathy to muggles too, right? Uh-huh. Lucius brings it up then, and then he says, I thought you, when I thought your family could sink no lower, Arthur, uh, at the uh, bookstore as well. So that was the first time I was known that. Go on, I'm sorry. The, the, the only thing I guess the point I'm trying to get to with this is just that the way that this is all constructed is like we're building on things that we've seen before right the idea of magical travel and the idea of things that are accidental that turn out for the best and then yeah then we're introducing these new layers upon them in like a I think it's kind of like a painterly fashion I, I would think about it like she sketched out the world in book one and now she's laying on some extra stuff some layers with Lucius, you know, the, the, the bigger, badder version of Draco, you know, and so uh, the, the way that l- these, each of these kind of um, magical situations uh, gain in volume and in depth over the time, I think is akin to the way that you take an ordinary object and you enchant it. And you add on this ah, like personality. As you add the story to an item, sort of like in Aladdin when the genie, and this has been confirmed by the creators, the, the genie is the storyteller at the first, suggesting that the great, the great genie that we all share is that which we share through story, which is consciousness. But what he says is, ah, there's much more to this lamp than meets the eye. And what is it that, meets the, that doesn't meet the eye? It's the story of it, which is what gives it its true value. And sort of that's how we tell our young to treat others, right? We say, you, you know, if you see someone poor, they're not just someone who is low on the dominance hierarchy. There's someone who got there somehow. So you should have some compassion or, you know, remember how you got here. Remember who you are. You know, just go to the Lion King. Remember. <laughs> so it, 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 you know, just, just put as many ideas in there as possible but you're you're right that 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 what makes something valuable isn't simply the physical constituent parts of it but 
um, the experiences that get appended to it, sort of like how we have trophies to recall to us good moments from the past or threats or obstacles we've overcome. Um, I'm sorry. And so, right. Yeah, but I would go on. Sorry. No, no, no. The, I was, yeah. The, the, thing, the thing about the dark arts store that I found really interesting was that it kind of illustrates this, right? Like things in there are enchanted and they're evil, you know? So it's not like this is mm. a wholly good thing. It right. goes in both 19 muggles hung themselves good, also on the hang rope. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and there's an allure to that, right? Like Draco is like fascinated by all this stuff and his dad- Which is good advice on it. his father's part, which shows that his father wants to keep him away from these sort of bad influences, which is interesting. Just, I meant to tie this to my claim about perception because one of the first things we see is that Harry's glasses get broken. He's covered in suit. He's on, he's on the wrong side of town, a place that if people were to see him there, they would raise their eyebrows. It's a place he doesn't want to be because people will, not, will misperceive why he's there, right? And so that's sort of like one of the first things we, or first uh, clues we get in the text that Harry's image or how he is seen is going to get roughed up in this text. Oh, um, that's and just, cool. just about a yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. I was, so I, I thought was that just, was a better point than the one I was about to make. No, no, no. I was just going to say that, um, like, it's cool to see how in the beginning of stories, yes. like, the the germs of the things that ultimately make them... The first layer. You know, really, yeah. And so to, to Wes's, I, I like that idea, Wes, that it's painterly. Like, like there's, mm. there's, like, there's not drafts, but, like, um, uh, I don't know coats on it or something like that um and and just like on i think in my book i have the american one this time which i'm like Meh. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh welcome down to the ple the plebeian level with us i'm on like page, page 52 and 53 when they're in um morgan and burks but there are like five or six moments in the first in just in chapter four and five well there are more than four or five but just on like these two pages alone where there are not just um, like painterly um, references or cues to things that happen later in book two, but into like into all into the entire series. So the reference to the hand of glory or to the opal necklace that killed 19 people um, like those two things become significant in book six. Um, the Half-Blood Prince. And then when Mr. Malfoy says to Mr. Borgen, like, I hope my son will amount to more than a thief or a plunderer. Like, yes. I mean, that 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 is elusive of book six. And then there are a couple times in just these two chapters where spiders or snakes are mentioned. Yes. But not yes. in reference. Even the Hogwarts Express is like a snake. Yeah, but it's not, they're not referenced as they're they're referenced in simile or metaphoric form not as ah, actual things right yes. so they're easily dismissed um at least they were to me when i first read them but they create like when you know what you're looking for they they like plant a seed right, right? not unlike you know the 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 maturation that the mandrakes have to undergo like right um, right, know, right, the, right let's make something some that grows yeah so, so another seed that we see, and then perhaps we, uh, yeah. So another seed is Ginny and Harry, yes. right? That's yes. gonna, that's going to play out not only during this, this book a little bit, but also during the entire series. 
And so something we notice is she defends him um, uh, when, when it, the claim is made by, I think it was Malfoy that Harry loved, loved getting the fame when he was in the bookstore with uh, Gilderoy Lockhart, but nothing could be further from the truth. He doesn't need the books. He has the money and he doesn't need the grief from Malfoy when Malfoy thinks that he's edging into his fame. But she says he wasn't, he didn't want that. She seems to have some understanding of him and uh, he notices her. That was something I noticed when he looks down into the sorting after he and Ron get out of uh, trouble, um, first trouble with the Whomping Willow, they, he notices Jenny's hair and it's unmistakable. Like you were saying, Wes, like it seems like everybody would notice that. But what we can notice as analytical readers is he notices that because he knows the specific features uh, and uh, of the Weasleys and is attracted to that sort of thing because, because they are close to him. Who knows what another person would see that stood out to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the other right. thing, um, another thing that's sort of foreshadowed, or at least I think, um, I think you mentioned it previously that's introduced in the, in the dark arts shop, but that it's not just the dark arts or that like the darker characters who mention it is like this, this emphasis on blood um, or lineage. Like yes. even, even Hagrid says, um, you know, oh, like, uh, you know, bad blood. Bad blood. Yeah. Malfoy's. Yeah. He's like, uh, he makes some comment about, um, well, Malfoy was bound to be kind of crappy because look at his blood. Look at his, you know, no Malfoy's worth what? listening to. Bad blood. That's what it is. You know, like this idea that where you come from is sort of determinant of, of your value or worth. I mean, obviously, that's not something that. I'm like, I think, but it's, and it's not something that I think she wants us to see as like, just a, just a law of this universe. Um, it's more but like we do, we do a see prevailing falling into that. Yeah. But it's like, a, pre a prevailing like, like were, assumption. Yeah. Right. And what's interesting is you see Percy fall into that this year. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. He, he, he feels his father who is looked down upon by Lucius and looked upon as having a, a, you know, a lowly profession because A, he deals with muggles who are scum to a pure blood like Lucius and B, he makes no money as we saw in the Greek gods vault or, you know, he has several children too to support, which is a, a big issue. But also, um, also the fact that um, uh, Percy, Percy becomes more and more removed from his family and is reading more and more about being a prefect and becoming minister of magic. He does not want to be bound by his, his father's success. He wants to be much more successful. So it seems as if he's sort of embodying that idea that you, you suggested there, that he, he might also have the notion that he wants to disassociate with his family because those around him might believe him to be like sort of a muggle lover or something like that. And I think we'll actually see that borne out throughout the text as well as he sort of moves further from it or farther from his family and closer to power as yeah. it were he's sort of getting slithering yeah. uh <laughs> with it um yeah Wes what I know we're missing a lot of seeds here and I I kind of want to talk about perception a little but are there any other I mean there must be seeds that we've been missing well I think I think we're doing kind of what the book is teaching us to do like if you read book one 
and then you come to book two you're like you should be on the lookout for like things that are planted early in the story that will probably come back and matter later right so i mean it's not like you're gonna have to notice everything because as you point out that's impossible like you have to have a frame you got to have a kind of lens to look at things through um but it if it's if it's informed by your reading of the first book then it's going to be like you you kind of try to pick up on some of this stuff um and then certainly going back later and trying to read it again you'll, you'll sort of again sort of see what you what you missed before and what you now feel like you should have noticed and and i think it's just a kind of a training hmm. a, a kind of education in, in how to read and just to add specific evidence to what you say, I would add three things, three prefigurations. Not only do Harry and Fred and George uh, go out and fly with Quidditch, so does Ron, which, I, which will prefigure his uh, admission onto the team eventually. Also, Draco, talking to his father, mentions how great, uh, or his father mentions that he is going to buy him a broomstick, which suggests that perhaps he will be playing some oh, yeah. Quidditch soon and um i've already forgot what my third instance oh no 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 here it is this is actually a much more global one just like in borgen and burks mr borgen is sort of dishonest with lucius just as lucius is dishonest with him he uh they talk about perception right it would not look quite right it would seem rather unseemly if someone were to find me with these 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 specific poisons and they might imagine that i would be uh, uh going to use them on muggles and that would be deeply unseemly and then Borgen is sort of oily with him, but the moment that uh, Lucius leaves, he sort of, he restores his frown and shows how he actually feels, um, sort of like someone sticking out yeah. a tongue at somebody afterwards, uh, perhaps a student to a teacher. And so, yeah, the, the notion that this is teaching us how to read and to, to uh, look for the seeds that will plant or will become the plants and to, to see the initial um, uh, starting points of the patterns is is very interesting what did what did you think about the few times that she sort of reiterated what happened in the the first book that was something mm -hmm. i didn't pay attention to any times i read like the sorting was happened this is when the four houses these are their names get sorted and um it, it's interesting because those recaps are are not so much shorter than the initial expositions from the first book right um but I was just, is the, I'm not even sure how exactly what question I'm trying to ask here so much is what, what is the use of that rhetorical device or is that an appropriate use of, or is that, or is that just sort of trying to show how, how information works with humans that, that we sort of distill it down more and more to show that, and what, that we know something better and better that like, like how I've just talked for like a whole minute trying to explain something simple, the, the better I get a grasp of the information and know what I'm talking about, the more succinct I can be. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think it's for me, it's like sort of Harry's memories being hmm. trotted out for us to, and it's like, this is, Oh, this is like that thing. And then he sort of like remembers a little bit, but again, it's, yeah, it's sort of stylized, you know, cause it's not in first person and it's not quite the way that memory actually works. Right. It's yeah. Very distilled, very succinct. I think it's helpful. Um, it sort of recalibrates you to know like, okay, this is where we're at and this is what these things are. And uh, just gives you the, the bare minimum for what you need. Yeah. To know I, to, I sort of think um, 
and I know that we, I mentioned this pre- before our conversation that um, the, the I think there's a real difference between these first two books, um, and I would say mm. even the first three, um, though though definitely the first two and the remaining four or five. Um, and there's yes. a difference in tone. There's a difference, I would argue, in gravity. Now, now our conversations are are bringing out some really interesting thematic and elusive um, uh, threads within the first two, the first two Harry Potter books. But I think like, you know, you take a step back and do a little comparison. And I mean, not, not only is that, are the pages like astronomically different in quantity, but um, I think there's something about the exposition that she offers every now and then that, um, maybe allows for the possibility that somebody read book two before they read book one. Um, and, and as much as like, given our conversation, we would think, oh, well, that's missing a lot. Um, no, that's good. That's very I think good. There's a, yeah. there's a possibility that you, that the, I think just because of the, the arc of the story being so similar um, you know, a few, a few uh, chapters at the Dursleys and obstacles leaving them and then obstacles. Right. And then there's the immersion into Diagon Alley. Now, this book, this, this second book, he's immersed into the darker side of Diagon Alley, yes. right? And maybe... And of fame. Right. And, and you could say that maybe given his experience of book one... It makes sense that he now, when he returns to Diagon Alley, because of what he's known through experience, uh, it makes sense that it changes his experience. Yeah, it makes sense that where he goes and that he 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 it, it makes sense that he not that he can go to the dark side of Diagon Alley with the flu powder, but that like if he does but land, it remains for it to be seen. Yeah, and, but he's already covered all the nice things. But if he lands there, he can figure it out. Or yes. like he's not unready for that. Um, he might be. He might not be totally prepared, but he's also been through stuff. So it would make sense that he, like, I think if in the first book that was his first experience of diagonally, that wouldn't that'd be like too much too soon, right? Um, right. And so this is like the dark side of, uh, like you said, like this this book explores the dark side of his fame the dark side of um magical objects the dark side of um <laughs> friend- yeah. friendship when hermione goes crazy for breaking rules and then and, and like the two boys are like right and the two boys Politics. are like oh i'm not sure i want to do that with you and she and she's been so affected by them that yes. <laughs> you know so um all that is to say Long story long, um, I think you can see the exposition moments as ways of allowing for people to enter the story without perhaps either remembering or um, having read all of the first one. And I maybe that's just maybe maybe that's just so that seems so um, commercial, honestly. No, but that's that's excellent because she had only been a commercial success for one book at that point. And so right. the position in which she's writing the second book is a very different position from the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh. Right. Like part of, I think what you're saying there with them being different is by that time she'd made it and she knew people would read really long and in-depth books, potentially with some darker elements. It's as if the fan base is sort of growing along 
with her as she's writing, because I think you're exactly right at this, at this point, this could have been a two book series, even if she had a plan for seven, depending on how well it did. Yeah. Um, I think it's hmm, pretty right. clear from the way that she lays um, Easter eggs that she knew what book seven was going to entail. Right. She knew at least <laughs> like big pieces of it. And I, and she said that in, in interviews in the past, but you're right. Like, I don't even know how commercially successful book one was like, and where it was commercially successful. I, I, I have no background in that, uh, in like the history of it, but I, I, I'm pretty sure from like my fuzzy, fuzzy memory of reading these when I was a kid, I'm pretty sure that by the time I got around to reading book one, we didn't have to wait for book two. Like in the same way that we had to wait for book four and book five and book six and book right. seven. Right. Well, there certainly wasn't the same swarm about buying one right. or even two as there was around. I mean, it was not the phenomenon that it would become right. at this point. It was still ne- kind of like Wes has been suggesting. Not only is the book and its text itself patterned in this way, but the phenomenon that the text becomes is patterned in this way. Mm-hmm. It has the early sign or, or even like Harry's life. It's got the early signs of being great and mm-hmm. it's hitting all the bases, but it's not yet there. It's kind of like what Franz DeWall says about uh, the morality of chimpanzees. They have the elements of morality, but not morality itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're just not quite there. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. Hmm. Wes. Yes. Did you, did you, <laughs> did you want to look at um... – uh, something particular about the like the perspective thing uh, that you're bringing up uh, the, the the imagery of looking okay, and well, just, seeing just and to connect sort of a thing. few images just to do some union amplification here the first thing is that Harry's glasses get knocked off his face as he goes to this nocturne alley and so think about nocturne you've gotten knocked off the path and you've taken a wrong turn that's the idea he's misspoken and that's why he got there. And now he's sort of not ready to see what's there, right? He's right at the edge because he can't quite see it clearly. And he also finds himself in a sort of regressive position where he is now putting himself back into uh, a, a small closet space. So he's, he's uh, set just like where he's come from, yeah. from the Dursley's hmm. home. And then, so just to connect that with a couple of things, we encounter this character, Gilderoy Lockhart, who is perceived as great. Five-time great smile for the Daily Prophet, or best, most charming smile, excuse me, I shouldn't uh, get it wrong. And he shows all his teeth at the same point, which is interesting because uh, that expression can mean two things, right? That he has beautiful teeth, but then we say showing your teeth is like an aggressive sort of thing. Um, uh, and, and of course, his image is on every single one of his books. And something he fails to seemingly perceive is that his books are expensive for families that have five kids that need to buy, like all 35 books that they're going to need to buy by him. Um, and, and then the next, the next thing being that um, the actions of Lucius, his name means light, which is interesting because his son's name means snake. And so you see two aspects of the devil in that family, the light bringer, Lucifer, Lucius, as well as Draco, the snake, the snake that tempts Eve. Mm. Um, and those concepts are often joined together, though not by all people. Um, but I would argue that they do go together very well. Um, and also the idea of the snake eating the sun, which is the idea of Apollo versus Python. And so you have an interesting father-son relationship uh, with uh, Draco and Lucius, which I'm, I'm very interested to get into at some point. But um, so Gilderoy Lockhart will will be covered in awards 
and sort of like a contemporary scholar of philosophy who is perhaps, uh, you know, perceived as being, you know, the wisest person in the world because of all their mentions and magazines and stuff, perhaps can only confound like, uh, like uh, uh, Lucius will show. But also just a couple other things. The, the actual antagonist, we're well, not the actual antagonist, but the vehicle of the antagonist, the basilisk, will by seeing things, petrify them and or kill them. Um, and there will be a connection between Harry and the heir to Slytherin made slash Voldemort that is both appropriate on the one hand, but inappropriate on another. And that, um, that people will think there is a connection between him and that he wishes to be just like him which is false, but there certainly is a connection because he's a parcel tongue and has been affected by him. And um, I, saw, I suppose like the last, the last thing just to mention is, is, is the mandrakes. Um, that at first they just seem like regular plants and then you pull them out and they're like little human things that can actually kill you or save you. There's far more to them than what there seems. And I guess I can mention last amplification that the Chamber of Secrets itself is something which is unseen and practically unknown of or unknown of. So it's perfectly like Voldemort, right? A thing which is unseen, which people don't mention the name of, but is definitely real. It has had a real negative violent effect on the world. So, so that would be my sort of beginning amplification about um, notions of perception and differences between perception and reality. Um, yeah. yeah, I was interested in the mandrakes. Like a couple of things about them struck me. The first being that these are um, hmm. seedlings, yeah. right? So perfect, and right? They, Just like our uh, seedlings. Yeah, yeah, right. And and they each have to um, wear their uh, earmuffs when they're working no with them. Uh, so yeah, so right. So you can sort of. You can protect yourself by not perceiving mm. certain things, but but you but you got to do so under the circumstances of like understanding what it right. is that you're not perceiving. Right, because pure ignorance like doesn't help you. But you're right that certain things they are kept ignorant of. Right, like Professor Sprout. And I don't want to get too much into sex because uh, uh, y'all are letting me not yet. But they go now into uh, uh, um, Terrarium Three not terrarium one. They've never been there. It's not called a terrarium. It's called a greenhouse. There we go. And um, we recall also that they weren't allowed to go um, past Fluffy or into the Forbidden Forest in the last text or, or to um, uh, the restricted... I mean, these are all places they end up going anyway, which is funny. Um, but they're not allowed to go into the restricted section as well. But there's good reason why they're kept from each of these places, why they're kept ignorant of these things which are sort of beyond their level at this point and so hmm it's it's as if it's sort of a discourse on the difference between that which you can't handle but are in a position to be prepared to handle and that that is the best position for an education versus being wholly ignorant of a circumstance or a threat, not having a clue at all or something like that. It's my first thought on that. Yeah, yeah. and so the, um, the, the mandrake or mandragora um, is of course like a really interesting mythological or mm -hmm. superstitious sort of reference as well because I, 
think the belief is basically like because it's sort of shaped like a person, like a little like a little homunculus or child. It's got these kind of forked. It's a real plant, but um, but so they used to believe uh, that because it looked that way, it would pertain to that kind of um, principle of the human body or something like that. So it's like it's used as a a thing that will help you um, become fertile, if I'm remembering right, or something like that. And so there's um, there's also a yes. uh, a play by Machiavelli that's titled Mandrake. I haven't read I that. I had to one. read it Have in college, it? but I'll be honest, that doesn't mean I a read it I, or I, I, no, no, that's <laughs> not true. I definitely read it. I I remember being confused as to why we were asked to read that and not the prince. But uh-huh. I yeah, I think I broadly remember it referring to I I think that main story and this is just something I got from my f- friend Nathaniel Tory because I read the prince not uh Mandragora. It, it, it's about a seduction it of is. a man's wife or something. Like it's that. about it's right? about yeah. adultery and I want to say rape. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh dear. So mm-hmm. it's a sex well, thing, though, right? Like the mandrake is a is a sex related plant uh, or superstition related to a plant that happens to look sort of mm-hmm. like the legs of a human yeah. or something. Oh. So, so the way that she the way that she adapts that to something that's like appropriate and interesting for her world. I find I find really cool. Um, and it's like you take that metaphorical thing and you and you remove it one further level, right? Like you make it literal sort of. It's like a baby that's under the dirt. Um, when you pull up the baby, its screams can kill you. Uh, once it starts to mature, it's more likely to do so. Um, you know, so it's like this this sexuality thing being adapted for the purposes of of this story um, in a in a in a sort of interesting funny way um ah, but you can tell that i it's see like, i see where you're coming from so so you're suggesting that the mandrake itself is a symbol for the natural coming coming to wakefulness of the the nascent sexuality of harry and ron and hermione and that this is the first uh just as the mandrake is growing into what it will be so will they grow into what they will be which more and more will involve the attentions and the, the lack of attention and the one of attention of the opposite number, which has also been suggested by uh, Jenny being called uh, the girlfriend of Harry already. Right. And uh, that uh, that's so interesting that it's sort of like the creature that represents sexuality, which is budding is a representation of the budding sexuality of the creatures we're following in the text, which are the humans, hmm. Harry, Ron and Hermione. I think so. It's it's pretty convoluted, that, but that yeah, strikes like me that. as very. I mean, it's it, I uh, just symbolically speaking, that sounds very strong. Just some one other instance about the mandragora or the mandrake that I don't know will help. I mean, two things about it is a, it comes from the word man and the word dragon, mandragon, sort of thing, which is very interesting. A drake is also a dragon. It comes from the word Draco, just like Draco's name, um, suggesting also that there's something maybe growing in Draco as well if we take a linguistic. idea there um uh but in pan's labyrinth a mandrake is given by given by pan the fawn to the main character named ophelia i'm sure y'all will appreciate that (laughs) and she places the mandrake which is described as a plant which wanted to be a man and it looks very humanish it's placed in a, a a container that has milk 
and blood that Ophelia has to give her own blood to it to sustain it. And it's placed underneath her mother's bed who's very sick while she's pregnant and it keeps her healthy until it's found and disposed of and her mother's uh, health goes down. So in, in that story, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of gotten a, a, an alexapharmic effect just like it does in this one, but it's different from the one that it has. Whereas it will uh, keep people or take petrification away from people in this one, it's sort of just has a general salubrious res- uh, effect in, in that one. But I, I think the general principle that holds is that that which can harm you can also help you. Um, um, yeah. The mandrakes are very weird. Yeah, and I, again, they're just kind of buried in there in the beginning for us to notice mm-hmm. that they'll have an effect. It again made me think of our, our friend, uh, no, oh no, I'm forgetting his name, not the Ma- but the other the other Russian who told us uh, with narrative economy uh, that which we Check see off. if we see a rifle. Yes, Chekhov. Oh gosh, Anton. I yeah, I was just forgetting his name. If we see uh, a shotgun on the mantle in the first act, that'd be shot by the third act. Right. And, I, I think yeah. I think to the like what you guys are circling around with this idea of the like the mandrake and its mythological slash um, you know uh, biological properties or at least by way of superstition i think it's interesting that like um again i'm i'm i've read ahead but like hermione is absent for quite some time in this story um and it's just the boys like the boys are the ones who fly the boys are the ones who get detention the boy i mean and like the boys are the ones and and like it's funny because there were there were moments in um the first one with Hermione getting detention with Harry yeah, and, and, Ron and, and Ron and Ron was in the uh the the medical ward right with Madame Pomfrey in book one but but in in I mean it just I think if if we also see like something as perhaps awakening in Draco and um when there's also like the what is Percy doing all alone up in his bedroom and there's right. there's all and then like Harry noticing Ginny there are all these like references mm. to like nascent Yes. Uh, romantic, uh, you know, romantic inklings or sexual desire or um, even just like, you know, dating Power. just like that. But but I think it's funny because they're they're still 12. And I I mean, like, I don't know about you guys. I don't know what your memory is of your 12 year old years. But like that was just plain awkward when you have the beginning <laughs> when like the beginning of that stuff happens. And then like later we'll see Draco and and harry duel and i mean let's be honest even in shakespeare's day <laughs> like dueling with swords was just in like that was just a it was just like a measuring contest like like the the <laughs> like it, it was a, a way for one it man... is literally a competition for status <laughs> to get that, to you get, know to, to get, get access to, to, to get to get the woman right i mean it was yeah. i yeah. mean it was a way for a man to express dominance and prowess in front of a woman over another man, right? Like, so, yes. so I think also keeping in mind that our, our villain for this book is going to be a 16 year old. Like there's something about adolescence that's ah. in, in like, and like ah. adolescents are drawn to like adolescent. I mean, and I say this having spent the last eight years teaching adolescent boys, <laughs> like, like that, the, the idea that they walk into the Gryffindor common room and get uproary, like up, like an uproar of applause, like no detention is gonna, is gonna 
change their behavior. The thing that really will change Harry's behavior is the burning shame he feels at the, at the knowledge that Mr. Weasley might lose his job because of what he did. But, but like, it's it's just I, I I see adolescence in this one so much more than youth, um like like a lot of adolescence. Um, things and, are awkward and things aren't working right. Yes, and, I, mean, yeah, I mean I think I think Ron's Ron is a perfect example of that. You're <laughs> totally right. Nothing is working out how they think it should. Right. Like, and I think that's another great element of returning to this world, right? We have this sense of security that now we understand the world after one whole book there, or even just half a book there, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it takes forever to get there. It takes 77 pages for us to get like uh, near Hogwarts in this one out of 341, at least in this American version. And so, <laughs> so that's so interesting because they're also just like sophomores in that way, so right? Yeah. I teach sophomores and sophomores who were the meanest people on a, on a high school campus, always sophomores. Why? Because they were just the freshmen and everybody looked down on them. And now they wield some amount of social status above somebody. And what do they do? Become tyrants. And so they, they misperceive their own, <laughs> their own rank <laughs> in the hierarchy, right? Because they're still, of course, you know, juniors and seniors far above them. And, um, and so, so yeah, that's very interesting that like we're getting this sort of second year, those two elements that a, you don't know everything, even though you think you did because you've done it once sort of like reading a book, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know everything about this book, even though we both mm-hmm. read it or we've all read them multiple times. And then B, uh, 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 your, <laughs> everything is changing. And that's something that you need to understand that even when you think you understand something and think it's stationary, the situation is always mutable. Which is why, which is why when they go into their first herbology lesson and she takes them to greenhouse three and everybody, everybody is all a guess like, Oh my God, they won't be in her bin in greenhouse one. And that's where all the dangerous stuff was like, it's a chance for them to maybe learn maybe through the hard way, maybe that like, Hey, Hey, like there are higher stakes here. If you don't have yes. the earmuffs on, you could die, right? Like, yeah. Um, and so for them, as to- Neville helps us out with. <laughs> they- um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Neville! Uh, but like, they could, they can still, they as students, as sophomores. I, I mean, I've taught sophomores for what eight, yeah, eight years, and like, they just have no awe. Like, there's no level of wonder in them. Like. I've been here. I know the rules. I know how it goes. I got this. Watch me as I fall. Right? Like the I and I and that can only be treated by providing them with a circumstance that forces them to to see themselves as oh wow I'm a little out of my depth. Right? Um, right. right. They're seeing themselves themselves relative to the freshmen, whereas you still see them as. You're just 15 now. You were just 14. Which I think, you, you see know, yeah. he, he, he goes in the flu. I mean, he's not really super confident about using the flu powder, but like everybody else seems to think he, he's got it. And, and he gets to some place that he's like a little bit out of his depth. Right. And mm-hmm. he figures it out, yes. but not really because he's greatly skilled just because he knows how to like run away. Right. Hide. Yeah. And like hide. A kid. Yeah. And hide like a kid. But um, I think, I think that there's just, there's something in that that like that yeah they all seem kind of sophomoric and uh, and Hagrid like you said has to come help him a, da- a father or an adult figure still has to come help him like that's a good that's a good reason for him to stay humble even though he will be portrayed as sort of an epic hero at the end of the text 
He yeah. still has sort of a father figure come grab him by the scruff and get him out of a nervous situation next to a creepy witch with <laughs> with some fingers. But oddly, oh. but oddly, like unlike, I mean, unlike your classic epic heroes, he's really not interested in being given all of this attention and like um he doesn't want to be the center of attention and every time he is the center of attention he's afraid of getting in trouble you know like uh i think i think that that i mean that's not something we saw as much in this reading we can explore that a little bit next time that like harry's relationship to fame versus lockhart's relationship to fame maybe i definitely want to get into that yeah yeah but next time because i do have to go pretty soon here okay so so Okay, I have a good, yeah, and you've been traveling all day, and yeah, I have the least excuse of anybody to need to go. But so, so we were talking today about things we would forget at Hogwarts, and maybe we can end with this. And so we have our few characters. We have Fred and George, who respectively leave there. I'm already forgetting what they left. I know that <laughs> Jenny leaves her diary. Her diary. Fred leaves. His, Fred leaves his broomstick. His broomstick. And George leaves his fireworks. Right. And George leaves his fireworks. Very good. So of those three things, Wes, what would you leave by accident? Um, I think fireworks. Why fireworks? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, well, if I were them, I would be really, really pumped about using the fireworks. Um, and if I were me, I would be terrified <laughs> of using the fireworks. you know be on the safe side either way don't bring the fireworks so subconscious I would not that's very good it. very good you'd be conflicted against yourself and have to have to force yourself into forgetting very very freudian very good uh how about, <laughs> how about you sarah is this like um if i were moving and leaving for school what would i be most likely to forget yeah and i guess also by proxy therefore most likely to take um oh interesting um i think i would probably be most likely to forget um my broomstick well mm-hmm. no that's not true i mean that's not true because i'd want i would put a lot of emphasis on packing my broomstick because i think i would really like that um i like sports i think the idea of flying a, a game that involves flying sounds awesome. I think I would be most likely to forget my fireworks, but for probably the exact opposite reason as, as Wes, that like, I, I don't care. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, I'm not really like a practice. Towards fireworks. No, no, no. Oh no. Really? I, I love it when wow. other people have fireworks. Ah. I love watching fireworks. I actually find fireworks ah. to be terrifying to like have near in my possession, course, but like, yeah. But like Explosive. I, I, it would be it would be thoroughly yeah it would be thoroughly out of my character to pack them in the first place. So yeah, <laughs> very good. All right. Yeah. What would All you right, What would so, you forget? So I'd never forget the fireworks because I'm gonna light it up wherever I go. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be bringing a diary because I'm not a, an 11 year old girl, and uh, <laughs> uh, and I would most like I would most likely. Uh, forget my my Quidditch broom because it would be I would think it was so obvious that I couldn't possibly forget it that I would uh, no, that I would no. I would almost certainly yeah. forget it and I would I would see it as such a part of me and my experience that even if I did forget it I, w- I would be sure that it would be sent to me so that I would be almost <laughs> careless 
about it. And just f- something funny, because I know you've been wanting us to share quotes lately, Sarah. So I'm going to pull a real Harry and Ron here. On page 93, there's just something funny. And this has almost no relation to anything. But I just <laughs> thought it was, again, one of those clever little things. So remember, S- Professor Sprout was hanging out with Gilderoy Lockhart. And she, she seemed to be disgruntled, not her usual happy self. And then he takes another liberty with her, taking her student out of class before she agreed. And then it's just very interesting, because physically speaking, she gave a sharp slap to a spiky, dark red plant as she spoke, making it draw on the long feelers that had been inching sneakily over her shoulder. And that just makes me suggest or mm-hmm. think cleverly that that's supposed to be a physical metaphor for the negative or dark thoughts that are forming in her head about mm. Gilderoy Lockhart. That she's showing that she's aware of that happening, that that's like an excellent educator, and that that's one of the tremendous aspects of an excellent educator, that they're aware when negative emotion or a negative perception of one of their colleagues or students is encroaching on their judgment, and that they can address that. And Mm. I I just thought, even though that was small, it was profound, because it showed that she's aware of things that normal people are not aware of as well, because it was sneaking up on her but she is not to be snuck up on. And, and we'd seen, seen something in, uh, similarly with Dumbledore when he was speaking to Harry and Ron that uh, even though Harry sort of left out a detail that it was Ron's father's car, um, that he knew uh, uh, that Dumbledore would see through that, that he would, he would know he's omniscient mm-hmm. still. So I just, mm-hmm. I really liked that part. And I wanted to show you that I have been listening when you've asked us to do that sort of thing <laughs> as well. Uh-huh. Got to give Hermione her due. <laughs> she is the one that aces all the tests after all uh all right well yeah uh it kind of sounded like you wanted to say one quick thing about that wes if you did we we probably have one more minute i thought i like the contrast between sprout and lockhart you know like his classroom where he has them do a test for half an hour on him and then brings out some pixies and just releases them with no right of instruction whatsoever. That's great. That was like yeah, my first yeah, year. Total <laughs> okay, debate. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that really does strike me as what a bad teacher has to teach, right? They just teach about themselves because they become like a cult of personality. And yep. then whenever you're given a task, they don't prepare you for it at all. Um, and that's definitely my first year of yep. teaching me and my second as well. Um, <laughs> So the so the so some yeah. of the seeds were grown out of it seems, <laughs> or maybe have been uh, trimmed. There we go. Some of the the poor parts of the plant. All right. Well, any, any last thoughts or till next time six seven eight y'all? Does that sound next time? Yeah, six seven eight. Well, we sort all right. Of, yeah, let, let's six seven eight. Right. We sort of talk tackled a little bit of six, but six seven eight yeah. is good. Okay. Uh, so yeah, then we get the death day party, which is excellent, and then we actually get mudbloods and murmurs um yeah and if we want to add another one as we go along we can leave a message on on the facebook page if we want yeah. to add cool. another chapter or something right. like that cool. right on well I'll, I'll keep you posted when i have more when i have some time it, it might be in a few days it might be yeah it might definitely not in the next couple of days but sometime early next week well we're looking forward to it maybe yeah. maybe yeah yeah we'll figure it out okay cool well, that All sounds right. great take that it easy great. fellas have a good night See y'all. See ya. No walking willows. (laughs) See ya. See ya.